Welcome to the Whole Story Podcast. This podcast series is focused on inspiring sustainability in agriculture using the framework of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, also known as the SDGs. Each week, our guests are invited to share their story and leave us with some practical tips for sustainability on farms. I'm Bex Smith, founder of The Whole Story, a B Corp certified social enterprise inspiring, facilitating and articulating holistic sustainability in agriculture. And this podcast has been brought to life in partnership with the incredible team at FMG, who are passionate about partnering with organisations like The Whole Story, so together we can support rural New Zealand. So whatever you're doing while listening to this episode, thanks for choosing us. The best way you can support our mahi is to follow and share the show on whatever app you're listening on. And I hope this episode leaves you inspired and excited about the bigger picture of sustainability in agriculture. Today on the Whole Story podcast, I sit down with Ben Anderson from the Central Hawke's Bay, an ex-army officer with a risk management background who grew up on a sheep and beef property. He's currently a velvet producer, tree farmer and dairy farmer. To be honest, this convo could have gone anywhere. But it went exactly where I expected. I reached out to Ben after reading his Nuffield Scholar report on the economic and environmental sustainability of the New Zealand deer industry and the case for change. It is this case for change I am particularly interested in, not only as a deer farmer myself, but also as an agricultural sustainability coach, working with other farmers to take on sustainability-linked opportunities. Ben is an avid hunter, and you get an idea of where this passion arose from as he recounts some of his entertaining childhood memories in our yarn. And although risk management is not always the most engaging of topics, Ben has a pragmatic way of chatting about the financial risks involved in farming. Some of his take-home tips are extremely relevant at the moment, as we face challenging financial times in the agricultural sector. So settle in with an open mind for an episode where we might challenge a few commonly held beliefs, but we hope that we offer reasoning for doing so and optimism at the end of it. Okay, so welcome along today, everybody. Today we have with us Ben Anderson from up in the Central Hawke's Bay. How are you going, Ben? Yeah, good, thanks, Bex. It's really good to be here. What's happening up your way today? What have you been up to? Oh, look, it's a bit of one of those days where I'm sort of trying to catch up with a bit of opera stuff, waiting for a bit of rain. It seems funny, eh? We were just be so wet, and now it's dry. I think we're all a bit worried about tipping into that drought, aren't we? But it's just about getting things organised for that and uh, doing a little bit of a farm system change at the moment. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a good time to have a chat. Perfect. And so cracking into it then around your farm business, where are you farming? What are you farming? And I guess, yeah, what was the farm system and what are you shifting to? To be fair, Bex, I never really know what I'm doing. That's probably the key. We try and make it up as we go along, right? We haven't been farming that long. I grew up farming in the King Country on a sheep and beef farm. So dry stock was what it was all about there. And then I took a long break from it and did the army thing for a while. I was overseas for quite a long period of time doing similar related stuff. Lived in that risk management space for a while. And then due to a couple of life circumstances, we finally had enough equity and thought, right, I'm back into it. Bought our first farm, which is here, which is a home block now, and that is a developing operation, and so we bought as a going concern, and as I say, that was primarily focused towards velvet, not venison, and then we've made a couple of shifts in more recent years. We've bought a forest block, or beer land, hill country, which we've converted into forest, and we've done a little bit more of the steep stuff in forest here as well, so we've probably got about, I don't know, 130 hectares of 
on now. Cue the hisses in the boots, but that's all right. We think it works for us. And then we've also very recently bought a, a once-a-day dairy operation down near Kadahuna. When I talk about farm system change, essentially what we're doing is we're consolidating in the dairy space a little bit more. And so we're just converting our um, developing operation into um, dairy support. And that's just trying to get that climatic balance and I guess become a little bit more self-sufficient in our operation and not relying on others so much for support, which I think gets a little bit more fraught as seasons change and best laid plans could be disrupted. Mm. So that's where we're in at the moment. And maybe a little bit for some of our listeners that might not know much about the deer industry and the nuance between venison versus velvet and what velvet actually is. Could you perhaps just give us a really brief rundown of that? So the velvet is essentially what is the precursor to the hard antler. Stags grow fresh-headed antlers and velvet on an annual basis. So it's a naturally occurring annual rhythm. So what we do is that instead of allowing the stags to grow out, we cut the velvet via a bit supervised process at about the 60-day mark, which normally starts around about October, and then we'll go through until December, maybe January, and then you'll cut regrowth after that. And so what the velvet is, essentially, is it's a soft tissue, which is highly prized in certain markets for a whole lot of reasons, such as everything from healthy joint function, osteoprevention, healthy brain function. It's pretty heavily prized in the Asian markets, but increasingly more in Western markets now as well, which is great. There's a heap of potential with it to expand on that a little bit more. In the velvet market, around about two-thirds of New Zealand's velvet goes into the Chinese market, and a third of it goes directly into the South Korean market. Some of that velvet that does go into the Chinese market is then on-sold into the South Korean market anyway, and they act as traders in that approach. Whereas venison, which is what we don't do, old stags and Things like that will go to the works, but venison is just like other meat and is bred and sold specifically for that. There's quite different genetics. And that is sort of you know, going to a range of things. And traditionally, that's been more of the, the European market and increasingly the American market, the, the venison. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And in contrast, we are venison farmers. So our stags that we have for our breeding program and our venison herds we get a profitable byproduct, which is the velvet, as opposed to your system where the genetics are there for the velvet production. Really cool to see those different facets of the deer industry in play. And I think a lot of people don't realize that it's not both being sought after on one farm. It is generally one or the other. And that's where you really capitalize on good genetics in different spaces because they are quite different genetics um, and different animals to be farming effectively. Yeah, look, 100%. And they are, regardless of which type you're going down, they're, they're pretty remarkable animals. Uh, a lot of respect from time for deer. Shifting away from that was a pretty hard decision. Um, and I hope that we will end up going back to it at some point. But it's just you just have to play what's in front of you at a specific time. But yeah, I think there's a lot of future in New Zealand for deer. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's very much taking that reliance out of other people and other markets. So with yourself in the dairy system, it's about building in that self-sufficiency so that you're not so reliant on the volatility. Yeah, it, look, it absolutely is. And there's been a couple of hard lessons that have reinforced that in the last season or two, I think. And, and not only feed and uh, surety of that for wintering, et cetera, and taking heifers through even things such as biosecurity and some of those hard lessons that the dairy industry has faced before. The more you can be self-contained, self-integrated, the better, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So the work that we do here with The Whole Story is based around sustainability. 
and specifically holistic sustainability. So the next question is really around what sustainability means to you, Ben. Yeah, look, it's interesting, isn't it, Big? So when you reached out to me, I thought, goodness me, I'm not that person. I thought, look, I really appreciate what you're doing, but I doubt that I'm a good fit because I probably don't have that full sustainability credential. But a lot of your listeners and people you've interviewed might have, and I can really only talk about it from what it means to me, which is great once you clarify that, right? I think that sustainability to me has two components. It's the environmental and it's the economic. And ultimately, you have to be able to do both. I think that's probably the critical underpinning of the whole lot. Nothing will stand independently. So for me, it means having a farm holding that is sustainable from an environmental perspective, both from a biodiversity and ecological um, perspective. I need it to be there and I need to be able to walk away once I've finished here, knowing that this operation is none the worse and ideally a lot better than what it was. Know that when I was growing up, my dad was subsidised by the government, and we're in the king country, and I helped him. We cut a lot of scrub. We burnt a lot of scrub back, trying to increase our land area. We drained wetlands. All the birds disappeared. I didn't actually really appreciate it at the time, but I think Dad is now he's now eighty-two years old, and while he's proud of his physical endeavours, I think he probably looks back at it with a sort of degree of remorse as well. Perhaps that's what he was doing. So I think that that's uh, a really key bit. We've got a couple of QE2 blocks on this place and another 50 acres of bush on the home block here, and I'm deeply proud of that. Uh, you know, we're on the dairy side. That's an ongoing operation. You know, when our waterways are fenced off, but we certainly need to do a lot more planning around those waterways and, and try and improve that further. It's a work in progress. Um, the integration of forestry. Look, I do think there is a lot of space to pine in the right place. I think from an environmental sustainability perspective, maybe not so much there. Environmental in the truest sense of the word, but sustainable, it's carbon neutral, it's a good product. It really is. There's an awful lot you can do with it. I think exotic timbers can contribute to the sustainability of the building sector and a whole lot of things in a massively important way. So we need to keep our eyes open and our ears open and think laterally in terms of what is actually sustainable out there from a farming system. And I overlay all that with the economic bit, right? And the economic bit has to be critical. It has to be there. One of the things I know for a truth is that you can't just keep selling commodities as a business model and expect to do really good environmental stuff out there. Because the problem with commodity dependence is that it's directly linked with environmental degradation, which is why the UN talks specifically about that and tries to shift countries off commodity dependence for that specific reason. In that respect, when we think about economic sustainability, what it looks like to me in the future is a space where we are extracting good value and the maximum potential value out of what we make rather than just trying to make money out of producing as much stuff as we possibly can because the land can only withstand so much and then you go beyond what your land can actually sustain and support. For me, that whole value chain is one of the most critical pieces right now that we actually really need to get a grip on. Because yeah. we want to be able to create an economically sustainable future for our children if we want them to stay on the land. Because we can't just keep on working on a capital gains model. It doesn't work. Right now, we've got some of our youngest farmers leaving the country, not wanting to go. Some of the most talented people are now electing not even to get into the sector because they can't afford the land and they can't see an economic business model behind it. 
So how does that keep on playing out? It doesn't. And so we actually need to change it. And that's why I think we're at the moment where the whole economic and environmental conversation is, is so critical. I think it really brings to the forefront how complex sustainability is, right? Like not only are there everyone having their own different lens on it, but also even within one person's lens, there's so many different moving parts that make up this word that's thrown around so freely. So no, all super valuable. And I think it's really important point to hit home, not just producing more and more and more and more and more to sell it at a commodity rate, because there are ecological limits to production. And, you know, we're a small country in the world. We need to be really capitalizing on the value of our products and leveling up. I think that's a really key point to sustainability. Thank you very much. It's such an important perspective on a big topic. Yeah. Yeah. Like, absolutely right. And I think, look, I'm the first to absolutely, I'm not the best Technically, I'm certainly not. I haven't been in it long enough and I probably never will be. And look, I, I don't know all the answers at all. Like, all I can do is just take my perspective and different experiences I've had in different industries and, and apply it to where we're at right now. But I do think, though, that it's critical that there are enough voices out there saying the same thing from whatever perspective. And we also agree on what an end state or an intent might look like for our sector. Because I think regardless of what our, our specific take is on what sustainability is, we all need to at least agree or have a vision in terms of what good would look like. And not letting excellent be the enemy of good, but we need to understand yeah. what good would look like for our sector right now. And uh, ultimately, yeah. it is it's environmentally and economically sustainable for future generations. Yeah, and that's exactly that. I don't claim to be the best farmer either, and I'm new to it too, but I don't actually know what does best look like in farming. What is actually the benchmark on that? And therefore, if we're all just leading and doing our own bit in small spaces working together towards a common vision or purpose then as a collective we have a chance of getting there i don't think it's putting one person at the leading edge and saying everyone follow that it's actually everyone come on board move a few steps forward together that's quite a tide of momentum yeah no i agree i agree with that yeah so i guess a little bit more about your background then ben can you tell us a bit of a story as to your journey into agriculture? Yeah, so my interest and, and love for farming, I think, and being on the land goes back to being a kid. And, and that was a pretty unique place. We were in the King Country. It's quite remote. The town is now dead. When I was here, I think the school had about 100 people in it. I used to catch the bus home every day, and there was a guy called Willie, the bus driver. And I was the last kid on the bus, and I was the only kid that knew that in behind the back seat wrapped up in the yellow raincoat was a 44 Magnum rifle. And we used to go pig hunting on the way home. And it was quite good. He'd be looking out one window and I'd be looking out the other. And this bush on either side of the road and we'd spot a pig and run up the hill and shoot it and occasionally let me shoot it. And we'd drag it back down and drag it over the fence and there'd be blood at the side of the, uh, the school bus. <laughs> I just tell that story because it was really remote and it was just such a cool environment to grow up, healing and creeks, riding horses, doing all stock work by horse. Yeah, it was great. I loved it. And so I always had in my head that was something I'd like to come back and do. But I never really knew how because I went to boarding school and then I joined the army and it probably had to get a few things out of my system at the time, which the army probably helped with. <laughs> but then eventually my father sold the farm because it just wasn't enough in there for me to cut back. So I never really thought the farm was going to be a, a viable option for me. 
And then fortunately through working hard and building businesses and saving a bit of money overseas, we, we got to the point where we could make our first leap back into it. And that work I was doing in between that period was, a lot of it was military related. I went through the military system as a soldier and an officer and traveled overseas quite a bit. Then when Afghan happened, I decided I didn't want to miss out. So I left the army and the army wasn't going at that time. So I went over there and worked privately and helped set up elections and uh, for the constitution, which is a bit of an eye-opener because it was all about democracy. And we set up these massive tents and camps and they always went around the tent and just passed out packets of money to buy the vote anyway. It was quite an interesting sort of a introduction to that kind of world. And I lived in that security risk management, crisis management space for a while. And then eventually decided that the wife and I, I probably needed to grow up and it was time to come home. And that sort of fortunately coincided with having enough equity to get in there. But I think someone did say to me, yeah, if I was a risk management consultant, I can't have been very good if I thought it was a good idea to buy a farm. And uh, probably right. And then it was a leap in and then it was just a lot of learning. I was really lucky that uh, had some really competent farmers that I could call upon to talk to. And they were very kind of the amount of support and effort and interest that they showed in getting me up and running. And that was really good. And I think it says a huge amount about the sector, isn't it? Just how good and willing the sector is at, at supporting each other which I think is a is quite a unique characteristic of agriculture in general. Yeah, definitely is. And it's funny you talk about that from a risk management perspective. Perhaps you wouldn't go into farming. There's something completely illogical about the draw of working on the land, I think. There's something that must connect with something deeper within us that sometimes you look at agriculture or you run the figures on the farm or something like that and you go, from a straight up business decision, it doesn't always make sense, but there's something around that deeper purpose and connection with land that seems to sometimes override all logic. Oh, I'm big, so I don't think any of us would be bloody farming if we just looked at it from logic, would we? Probably not. Look, it's the return, and I might have touched on it earlier. If you looked at the returns from farming and the risk associated with it, you'd never do it. But when you look at it from risk, you only accept risk when you know there's a return commensurate to the level of risk that you're going to take. Otherwise, why would you do it? An insurance company wouldn't, a bank wouldn't, but we do. We do it every day. And I think it doesn't mean that we shouldn't farm, but it does mean that we should at least think about that ratio because I think the more we think about it and, uh, and try and address it, I think the better off we'll be. No wonder bank managers pull their hair out. <laughs> I think they do pretty well off us too, so I suspect they're being compensated for their loss of hair. That story about the hunting on the bus is just a cracker. But I'm going to ask you again, because I have a feeling there might be some other gems in there. What is your funniest story relating to farming or agriculture? Yeah, I can tell you that exactly, actually. And it's sort of, it's the same thing from a childhood. I remember mustering out the bush panic with my father on a horse. And my job when he was doing it was to go ahead and open the gate and then go up the hill of it and turn the cattle in. And we were mustering cows and calves. And we'd take them along quite slowly. And I remember at this point, dad was off his horse leading it. He cut back along the track because he realized he had left a calf behind. And he was walking along the track. And I could see it. This would have been quite a few hundred meters away. And then I could see the cow come back looking for a calf. And in between the calf and her was the old man. And I remember I could see it. I shouted out to him and he just didn't hear me. And anyway, the cow put a head down and flipped him. He went straight over the head of the cow and landed on the cow's back, facing backwards while leading his horse. Like clever, I've never seen that before. And I've still got that vision in my head. Dad riding the cow backwards, leading his horse. But um, yeah, no, he was fine, perfectly intact. Just stepped off the cow and carried on. 
I think we've all got little things like that, right? Probably one other was just, we used to have these things called blasting guns. We've always had a quite a healthy appreciation for black powder in our family, I think. And, and anyway, this blasting gun is, is like the, the precursor to the log splitter. And it's basically just a steel tube that you, you fill with blasting powder. You drive into the butt of a, of a log you want to split. And you light a fuse and you put a wet sack over the, over the end to stop the thing flying away. And ideally, if you've driven it far enough and you've got the, the, the log straight enough and grain, it'll split open. But you've got to be quite careful, eh? Because, um, A, the old man was running short of fuse. So you always, you lit it and you really had to run pretty quick. And then when this thing went up, it was just, there's bits of timber flying all over the place. And it's a miracle we're alive, but not much fun. Mm. Oh, that sounds good. Your dad wasn't a rodeo rider by any chance. That trick on the back of a cow. That's yeah, he used to ride rodeo. He was in a he was in a boxing troop in Australia for a while, and then he uh, rode rodeo. There you go. That skill set came in handy. Oh, yeah, oh, it's probably one of the few ones that did. You know exactly. He was always living a life of crisis management, so maybe that's where I picked it up from. Mm. That is a cracker of two good stories, actually. I didn't know about that log splitting technique. Oh yeah, we sounds- got blasting guns. So much fun. Sounds like good fun. Yeah. yeah. We're just all a bit boring these days, actually, aren't we? 100%. We're only going backwards. Did you know that the whole story was a certified B Corp? Well, we are, but what does that mean? B Corps are businesses that are committed to balancing purpose and profit as a means of being a force for good in the world. But that commitment goes beyond good intentions. The truth is, any business can claim to be sustainable or socially responsible. However, without validation, they're just words. So B Corp certification gives them meaning. It provides visibility into the things that we're doing and the impact that we're having. B Corp certification is a demanding process that includes the B Impact Assessment that evaluates how our operations and business models impact workers, the community, the environment and customers. Unlike other certifications, B Corp certification doesn't just evaluate a product, process or service, it measures the company's entire social environmental impact. It's the only certification program of its kind, and it uses rigorous assessment framework that lends credibility to companies that achieve it. It gives confidence to the growing number of customers that want to buy and work with purpose-driven brands. So when you're next making a purchasing decision or a brand partnership decision, look for the B in the circle. That way you can know with certainty that the organization you're dealing with is committed to being a force for good in the world. I guess then, what have been some of the low-hanging fruit with regards to sustainability in your farming businesses over the years? And maybe you could think about that from within the velvet business or within the dairy business or within the forestry business. For me, possibly, is not trying to run it on the rim at the whole time. Step back, have a real buffer in your system. You know, let your covers run a little bit longer. Don't try and stop as intensely. You know, that's probably an important risk management tool. I mean, I think, you know, when returns are a bit lean, you're trying to maximize every specific opportunity you might get from a season or a trading opportunity. But in my very limited and humble experience, just being prepared to let it dial back a bit and run it with a bit more flex in your system is, is never a bad thing to do. And that has, has strong environmental benefits too, I think, from soil health to a, to a whole range of things, depending on how you take advantage of it. I'm going to say something deep and popular now, but I think uh, the other thing that's actually really good way of doing it is plant pine trees. And um, man, that's going to sting a lot of people. And I'm going to be thankful I'm popular for saying it, but the reality is that if you think about nutrient runoff and stuff like that, we're in a priority catchment. Reducing that runoff is, is, is important. Pine trees allow me to do that. And actually I can do probably about a 1,000 to 1,200 earpiece per hectare from that. 
because I'm within a 100k of port and extraction's easy. Um, that's not including carbon, which is the fringe benefit, which for me is the cream. I'll never do that out of um, dry stock. You know, I might do 500 EFS. You know, I was at a good friend's place the other day and he's just planted native into gullies and things like that. And I can't remember what his carbon return was, but it was actually pretty good. He was getting more money out of his gullies than he was out of his Edison in Belbert. You know, I just think that sometimes we shouldn't let ideology get in the way of um, what's in front of us too. Sometimes that can be the enemy a little bit. I think there's a difference between what people are getting rightly upset about with regards to pine planting and what actually in a balanced approach in certain areas of farms to buffer the system and build resiliency in the farm system, how planting pines or natives could integrate there. And I think it's actually about, as you say, taking a step back and looking at it and going, actually, we're not talking about a whole farm conversion here. We're talking about selecting small areas or areas of the farm where this could actually be really beneficial and is the right place to integrate planting. And what does that then allow us to do as a farm system and a farming family? We are a farming couple going through farm succession and you talked before about capital gains and that model. It's getting tougher and tougher for young couples to succeed family farms. So we have to look to build in and integrate some of these different avenues into the resiliency of our farm systems. Yeah, I completely agree. I just think you need to look laterally and objectively into every situation, right? I would be the last person to say that we want our country to be just a monoculture of pine trees. Uh, we don't want that. But we should think about their integration, absolutely. And then I think the next thing we need to be doing, because your original question was in relationship to what's a low-hanging fruit, and the second bit is what we do with our um, raw commodity product from this point forward and how we process it, add value to it, and sell it, which is not the low-hanging fruit, but it's 100% what we need to be addressing. Because if we don't do that, we will be a monoculture of pine trees. So my aim would be to be from lamb and people like that to try to put impediments in there. I said, if you're angry about pine trees, brilliant, be angry. I think it's really positive. But don't just try and restrict people from planting trees. You need to create a framework where dry stock, for example, is equally as valuable as. Because you can't just prevent people from doing what is economically sensible on their land. You need to prevent a compelling reason why you shouldn't. And I think that's the point that perhaps the industry bodies could also take on board. Yeah, they're adding value. For anybody interested in hearing more of your thoughts on that, you've got a new set of articles coming out in Farmers Weekly, haven't you, about eating the elephant? Is that right? Covering off some of this adding value, perhaps? Yeah, we do, Ryan. There's four of us doing it. And we've all got very different perspectives on what good looks like. Yeah, and we've probably got more of a conventional industry man in there who's got some really good reasons why he believes in that. And we've got a guy who's probably uh, a lot more on the sustainability spectrum in terms of what he thinks it good would look like. And then we've got a guy who's coming out of the finance world, a lot of really interesting perspectives as well. And then there's me who sort of like brings up the grumpy old farmers and a piece of it. I think that we all have a different take on what good looks like, just as you said earlier. Because I did enough here in this thing, and I guess that's why I'm sort of keen on it, which is that economic environmental sustainability piece. And so I think that for me, as I said to you earlier, if we want to be environmentally sustainable, we must go further down that value chain in order to do that. And the big question is that whenever I talk to any farmer about that, they will go, yeah, we agree. 
We agree that something's got to change, but we don't know what that is. We don't know what we're, we're heading towards. It's just too hard. We've tried it. We've done wool acquisition. We've done this. We've tried that. It hasn't worked. And, and they're right. We have tried a lot of things. But I think what we're getting to the point now is that the world is also changing. A, we've got a point where we actually do really need to change now. So we've got more acid than we ever used to have in the past, perhaps. But we also have things such as technology, which it now it is at a point where we've never really had before had the ability to reach out and communicate with our end consumers like we do now. Yeah, much like what you're doing with your podcast, you know, a whole range of tools that we can utilize as we create and market sell our products to ultimately what we want to be a much further point down that value chain. And that's just one example. There's just uh, so much opportunity in that area and we really need to have a really meaningful conversation about where we want to be and how we get there. And that's probably my biggest thing right now. And so do you think companies are doing enough in this space? No, I don't think they are. Look, I need to be careful that I step out of line a little bit and outside my own lane because I don't know a huge amount about the wool side. I know a bit about the meat side and I think I know quite a lot about the velvet side. So I can probably talk to that with a little bit more authority, right? So I'll give you that as a case study. So within velvet, if you do a value spread analysis, we take 3% of the end value of our velvet. So you imagine if we could double that, if we could double our income, that's only 6%. And look, I know that there's money that goes into uh, marketing and branding and I, I get all of that, but I don't believe, I cannot believe that we cannot take a bigger slice. You know, are we not smart enough to do that? Do we not have any ability? Of course we do. But what we do is we just get told that this is the way we should be selling our stuff. And that's what we do. And what I see is a lot of industry effort in terms of maintaining the status quo and reaching out and, and increasing those markets. So we're selling more stuff potentially, but we're not actually getting a better return at the farm gate. And that is ultimately the tragedy of it. So with beef, we get 12 cents out of every dollar. If you look at a value spread analysis, I think the Americans get 15 cents. You know, there's so much more money to be had. It's not easy. I get that. But we just got to stop focusing on getting more kgs out the door and thinking about either A, how we can add more value to that ourselves. What is our potential to add value to the commodities that we produce? And if we find that we have problems in terms of adding value, to a commodity, well, then my question to you would be, should we actually be doubling down on that commodity in the first place? If we can't add value to it and we can't make a better proposition for our farmers, why persevere with that? Why not look at another commodity type where you can? So, no, there's some bigger questions there. But yeah, and, and to answer your question, no, I absolutely don't think that our industries are doing enough. No farmer would disagree with you that we need to add more value to our products. I said to Jason, actually, we are better on this farm and like many other farmers than a commodity product. Nothing should leave our gates as a commodity. But whose responsibility is it? Because adding that value is a tough job, right? And the farmers are just busy enough farming and, and now meeting a lot of compliance needs as well. Who does the value add piece? Is that individual farmers or is it a call to action for our industry bodies to lobby in that space or is it find the companies who are leading the charge on that adding value to the commodity product and actually supporting them 
Yeah, look, it's interesting. Eh? I um, just drafted another article specifically on that. But I'll tell you a story that I use in the article, right? I don't know if it'll resonate or not. It, it helps to answer part of that problem. So Barry Crump tells a story about how he comes out of a deer-culling job and he arrives at a train station. And there, he's looking to, to meet up with another deer-culler who he's um, going to go on to the next block with. And he spies there on the platform tied to a pole is a dog, and the dog is guarding this old pile of smelly old gear, and he's growling away at anyone that comes near this gear. And Barry goes, that must be a deer colour's dog, because only a deer colour's dog would think that pile of that would be worth looking after. So here's my parallel, right? And I'm being a little bit rude here, but my parallel is, is that sometimes when you've got a whole lot of industry voices, the deer colour's dogs, that are growling very loudly and trying to protect a model that is not particularly good, and yet those same people are the people that are influencing and representing our industry at a government level, then we've got a problem. So my take really would be we need to create more of a new advisory group. I think there's a lot of voices out there, people like yourself, who are trying to articulate a new way of doing something, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's a case with any movement that nothing ever happens overnight, and it's thousands and thousands of voices that are saying the same thing over and over again in a slightly different way. And you reach a pivotal point where actually you start to get traction. And that's what hopefully we're all trying to do at the moment, whether it's me writing an article or you on this podcast or something like that. But my take would be that what we really need to be doing is getting an alternative formal voice that government listens to and talks to. And it actually says, look, we would like to see government investment policy and funding supporting the following things rather than just doubling down into trade access for commodity products. Yep, we're going to be reliant on commodity products for quite a period of time. I get that. I know that because that's what pays the bills right now. But that's not to say that's where we need to be in the future, right? So how do we create a voice, a formal body representative group that influences government and that government talks to, a trusted voice who will actually have the experience and the capacity to articulate what we should be investing in, how we should be investing, how we should be formulating our, our national policy and where we should be you know, investing our trade access efforts. And if we could do that, that would be a really good start point, I think. Yep, the private sector absolutely has a massive part in that. And private sector will do private sector's thing. It already is, and that's fantastic. But we also need to be supporting the types of models that farmers have the ability to be a part of and access in, whether it's a, another cooperative model, for example. It could be a range of different things. Yeah, the NZ Marino model is another example. There's different ways of doing it. But why don't we look, look at where we actually have true success stories and try and replicate those a lot more? You know, we're always going to have commodities in the system. Of course we are. But can we just take that bulk out of that so we're not so dependent on it? We don't keep crashing down in recessions every time China burps. And, I, and that's ultimately what we want to be trying to do. Yeah, building a bit of resiliency and fat in the system, yeah. right? Yeah, 100%, I think. To me, that's what makes sense, you know, not listening to the deer colours dog and start listening to people that actually um, want to see change. Every farmer I know wants to see change. Every farmer thinks we can do better. The only problem is we don't know how we're going to get there. So why don't we form a group of people that do know how to get there? And, you know, there are people out there right now. There's some exceptionally good marketers. There's some exceptionally good advertisers, branders, people who have been successfully selling products overseas already. Let's get them as the voices of agriculture. Yeah, 100%. No, I just think it's such an important message. So thank you for that. I look forward to reading this article. You might be disappointed, but hopefully it's an important <laughs> point. Surely not. Surely not. 
What's exciting you then about your farming business over the next five years, Ben? Oh, I think staying solvent would keep me excited. But look, I think it's the opportunity to go further down the value chain. That's my next thing. Playing around with it a little bit for now, but I'm at the point now where I'm just about ready. And give it another year and we're going to have a stupid of a serious crack at that. Yeah, that's what excites me. Yeah, and I would agree with that. It's certainly something we're exploring within our own farm business and pushing play on some pretty big initiatives this year to actually try and get further down that value chain, get closer to our consumer. So yeah. watch this space. I could be a monumental fail, but at least I'm out there giving it a crack, right? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, look, as long as you manage your risk on it, you know, what's that old saying that every failure is a step closer to success and as long as it doesn't sink you, you're good. Yeah, we, we can't be afraid of failure. We had to fall over and someone will say, hey, see, it didn't work. I told you so. I'm saying, no, no, I don't accept that. It didn't work that time. What's the reason it didn't work? Here's the situation changed. Can I do it differently? Is the idea wrong or was the execution of that business model wrong? Or was the timing not right? I don't know, but let's look at it for what it is. And so building on that then, what's some of the best farming advice you've ever received? I've been lucky. I've had a lot of good advice. I think it's about not trying to run your system on the river. We spoke about that before, but I think that point is still really valid for me. Don't put your house on trying to do that. There's better things to put your house on. It's very much that. Just try and cool your jets a little bit. Run a business model with that. And for me, that makes good advice. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. And it's interesting you reflecting on that because you're right. There's so much. And it comes back to what we were talking earlier. The agricultural sector's outstanding with the amount of community and support that we all provide each other. And advice comes from the most unlikely of places. And so frequently, you just get little tidbits of wisdom from people that it's actually hard to pinpoint one that's the best because they're all the best piece at the right time when you need them. Yeah. I think that's right. I'd- it was interesting, I through a period of time, we were trying to develop things quite a lot. And there was a guy called Evan Potter who won environmental award a while ago, him and his wife, Linda. And it was his little nugget, was uh, only spend money on stuff that's going to make you money, save you time, or keep you safer. Yeah, and I think when money's short, that's probably not bad advice. Mm. That's brilliant advice. And so moving on to the next question then, it's really got to do with this fast pace of change and the never-ending list of to-dos or compliance that's constantly coming at us at the moment almost feels like a bit of an avalanche uh, at times. How do you personally prevent overwhelm, burnout, or even apathy in that space and stand up to face the challenge? That's a good question, isn't it? I don't know. I'd probably fall to that as much as anyone in terms of getting frustrated. I think what you have to do is look at the bigger picture, right? And look, the reality is that the compliance perspective is always going to be there. We're always going to have that. When you're a land-based business and you're making money off land and you can affect the quality of your soil, your water, your atmosphere, there's always going to be regulation. And I think it's fair to say that the people that we want to sell our food to, people that can afford to pay the money we want it to be purchased at, will have an expectation that we can demonstrate those environmental attributes of our food and our endeavour. So I think we just simply need to accept that that is a fact. But it doesn't stop us providing feedback to those, whether they're in local government, whether they're producer level and say, look, what would make more sense? Why are we duplicating this? Can we make this more seamless? And provide that feedback and in many cases demand that that occurs. Because there's something silly and it doesn't link up, we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't point that out. And try and find solutions that go with it rather than just finding holes. That's not particularly useful either. 
I think those are the, the key things that I just try and keep in the back of my head rather than just get frustrated and annoyed with it. But farming is a game of resilience, isn't it? You know, to my wife about deer colours, dog analogy, and we just agreed, yeah, but the one thing you've got to be a little bit careful about is that you don't want to just completely be too derogatory about the deer colours dogs because they knew how to be resilient. And we need to take that on board. It'd be nice to be able to get to the point where we didn't have to be as resilient as much. But certainly, I think those points in relationship to compliance, but also thinking about the fact that how can we monetize that at the later point too. You know, if we're going to go further down that value chain, how can we utilize that information that we're gathering to actually make that a point of difference for their products? So my biggest frustration is we're just doing that stuff, but we're not actually getting any more money for it. So what do we have to do to actually get money for the time and effort that we're putting into all the compliance pieces and sit around our operation right now? Yeah. You're seeing the opportunity within the challenge, which is quite an interesting way of reflecting on it, even in the darkest of times going, well, okay, we have to do this. It's going to be there regardless. How can we flip that and actually try and move further along the value chain and actually monetize this. Never waste a crisis. There's always an opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Got to find the opportunity. So yeah. one last question for you then, Ben, and I will leave you to your busy day. We like to leave our listeners back down at the ground level. So if you had one take-home sustainability tip that farmers could go out and put into action today, what would it be? I think it's recognizing that small actions add up, right? Sometimes things can be overwhelming whether it's putting in planting or improving your fencing or whatever it happens to be. And whether that's from an environmental sustainability perspective or a financial sustainability perspective, all those small actions add up. And I think it's about trusting your intent, being clear in your intent and just making small steps. First steps count. Sometimes the first step's the hardest one, right? And then it's just incremental steps after that. Don't be put off by the size of the job. It's very easy to do, right? Things can seem overwhelming, but constant incremental improvement and actions lead up to big results. And so that's probably the biggest bit. Yeah. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. (laughs) (laughs) One bite at a time and lots of mouths eating it. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Ben, thank you so much for your time today. I know that there's so many gems that have come out of this conversation and that it's going to be a really interesting listen for our audience. So, yeah, thank you so much for connecting. And I hope this certainly isn't the last time we talk. And I wish you all the best with your admin catch-up day. Thanks, Bex. I really appreciate it. It was really nice to meet you. Great to talk. And, yeah, we'll look forward to the next one. This conversation hits the mark with so many of the sustainable development goals. In particular, is the need to mention goal number eight, economic growth. The reference to Ben's Nuffield Scholarship, completed in 2021, where his report was titled Economic and Environmental Sustainability in the New Zealand Deer Industry and the Case for Change. This paper initially set out to determine whether it was possible to better monetise sustainability with the New Zealand deer industry, and in addition to understand why New Zealand deer farmers seem to achieve such poor returns in comparison to both the end value of their products and the level of risk they accepted in producing them. It also covers whether our conventional industry supply chains were going to be fit for purpose in a rapidly changing world. The link to the full report will be provided in the show notes. Following on from this, we spent a lot of time in this conversation diving into goal number nine, industry, innovation and infrastructure. One of the specific targets, 9B, underneath this goal, speaks to the need to support domestic technology development, research and innovation, 
including by ensuring a conducive policy environment for industrial diversification and value addition to commodities, among other things. The continued mismanagement of the commodity sector could make the achievement of sustainable development goals difficult due to environmental degradation, displacement of populations, worsening economic and social inequality, civil unrest, tax evasion and corruption. In addition, poor results in terms of curbing the utilisation of polluting sources of energy, i.e. fossil fuels, could dramatically impact other efforts made to reinforce food security and adapt to climate change. The interactions between developments in the commodity sector and the Sustainable Development Goals are multiple and complex. They involve a dynamic process of transformation, creating opportunities to build sustainable and innovative economies while preserving the natural resource base and environment for future generations. Improving the management of the commodity sector is one of the main priorities towards achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals. And the following goals and targets are of particular concern. So stick with me for a minute, you SDG nerds. Firstly, food and energy security, with targets 2A, 2B, 2C, 7.1 and 7B. Secondly, adding value to commodities, with the aforementioned target 9B. And thirdly, improving the management of natural resources by increasing resource efficiency and renewable energy use. So this basically covers off goals 12, 14 and 15, responsible consumption and production, life below water, and life on land, respectively. Now that's all a bit of a mouthful, but go back and have a listen again, because this conversation is pivotal to achievement of sustainable development goals. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Whole Story Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it and are feeling inspired and optimistic about putting sustainability into practice on farm. I have one last request for you before you go. Make sure whatever platform you're listening to us on that you hit follow and share the show or episodes with your friends so that together we can grow our community and inspire sustainability and agriculture in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And thanks again to FMG for partnering with The Whole Story so that we could bring this podcast to life for you all to enjoy. Catch you next time.